New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. It's no secret that men are in trouble today. Today's culture seems to reward behaviors like domination and aggression. This can be seen with great clarity as wars rage from Iraq to Sri Lanka, from Lebanon to Sudan. Even gangs in the United States reflect this sick masculinity out of control. What can we do to support the waking up of authentic masculinity and its spiritual nature? The answer to this question serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Matthew Fox. Matthew Fox is a scholar in residence with the Academy for the Love of Learning in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years and holds a doctorate in the history and theology of spirituality from the Institut Catholique de Paris. Fox is currently lecturing, teaching, and writing and is president of Friends of Creation Spirituality, the nonprofit that he created in 1984. He's the author of 28 books, including Original Blessing, The Reinvention of Work, and the hidden spirituality of men, 10 metaphors to awaken the sacred masculine. Join us for the next hour as we explore masculine spirituality and its relevance to the times with our guest, Matthew Fox. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Matt, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you back again. We've been doing this for a while, haven't we? We go way back. <laughs> yeah, three decades, I think, really. Wow. So what prompted you to what was the what was the what, what prompted you to to write this book about hidden spirituality and masculine? I think there are um, two two rivers, if you will. One was what you alluded to that I think that men have been getting distorted pictures of what it means to be masculine, and I think we've seen it in the last eight years, uh, up close and personal in our culture. I mean, I, the the reptilian brain connected to testosterone is a very dangerous thing. I think. Dick Cheney and, and that attitude of the neoconservatives that we're just going to make war where we want, when we want, and lie about it is uh, it's a very masculine thing to do in, in a perverted sense. Another river I think that's influenced me is that, of course, um, I've been working with women and the whole feminist movement and bringing, helping to bring more conscious the whole awakening of the divine feminine, and that's a tremendous sign of hope and accomplishment in our lifetime that uh, so many women have, not only as scholars, but as individuals or meeting in groups and so on, have really brought the goddess back, have brought the divine feminine alive. But you have to ask, well, where is the healthy masculine? And you see um, the, the divine feminine cries out for the sacred masculine. And the fact is we have so much, I and mean, it's not just our government, but look at Wall Street now. It was men, check it out, white men who did all that 
chicanery. Then there's the Vatican and, and religion in general. And then there's uh, fundamentalism in Islam and and uh, and all around the world today. So there's a, I think there's a sick masculine energy that needs critiquing, that needs cleaning up and detoxing. And uh, of course, we had a men's movement for a while, but in many respects, I think it's run out of steam. I think, uh, you know, there were limits to it. And uh, I think what I'm trying to do with this book is kind of recharge the the male agenda so that men who are behind women, frankly, in the, if you will, in the race to wake up <laughs> and become true to ourselves, uh, I think it's time that men uh, moved out of our adolescence, started growing up. Because our species, as we know, does not have a lot of time left. We have to make some significant changes. And uh, to me, that... That's where spirituality comes in. It's interesting to me that the book Iron John, written by Robert Bly, was was the best-selling book during the time that we started the first uh, Iraqi war. Uh When when we talk about the men's movement, we're talking about largely but really fomented by Robert Bly, his work, and Michael Mead. And, uh, And of course, I I respect them. I know them. I've even done some work with them. Yes. But um, it didn't have the effect, the broad effect, that, that we need. You know, and I, I think one reason may be that, of course, Robert Bly is a, is a brilliant poet, and their approach to poetry, I love it myself. However, I read recently that 5% of Americans read poetry, and of that, I would guess 70% are women. So, you know, it's a, it's a limited audience. Whereas my approach, by dealing with archetypes and um, these spiritual um, metaphors that cross through many traditions and so forth, I think it has the potential for reaching a broader um, audience. Also, frankly, Bly was mocked by the media, uh, the mainstream media, which of course was male-dominated. Yes. It did not take well to the men's movement. And um, so a lot of it had become hidden in a way. Men kind of hid in the closet and uh, so forth. So I, I think it certainly accomplished something and it helped a lot of individual men, but not I think we need something larger to for this next generation of uh, of waking up. Yes, we're talking about younger people. How do we attract? How do how do younger people uh, identify with what's good in being male? That's right, and and younger and older together. The whole what I talk about the intergenerational wisdom. So of course I have a chapter on the grandfatherly heart. So the whole role of the elder that's been so distorted in our culture. We've been given the lesson that uh, retirement means you spend the rest of your life on a golf course or something, or playing the stock market. And uh, and that's just not true. You know, I think we should retire the word retirement, replace it with the word refirement. And when the time comes well, in your good. life... that's I like that. <laughs> yeah, when you're not having to put bread on the table for others, great, where's the fire in your belly? And I think 95% of older men will say, hey, I do want to work with young people. There's a special allurement between the grandfather and the grandchild uh, generation. And our, our culture needs to wake up to that, I think. And uh, both the young have wisdom to give the old, and the old have wisdom to give the young. Yeah, it's interesting that we're, we're putting our older our elders into rest homes and uh, uh, putting our kids in jail. <laughs> there you go. That says it all. That yeah. says it all. That says it all. That's split between the elders and the, and the child, and that's like signs of the death of a society because you really need that connection. You need that connection to the to the past and the roots and where you come from. Exactly. And you need that diversity. Yes. And, um, you know, so much of our culture is stratified by generation today. And um, uh, obviously the young have whole new languages, whether it's, you know, the iTunes and the 
YouTube and the and ramp and all of it. And um, the older ones, you know, should be curious about how to tap into this. And um, we all know, you know, when your computer breaks down, you call your nephew in to fix it. You know, your 15-year-old nephew, because there's a... Uh, uh, there's something that generation knows that uh, we older ones don't. Sure, I know. I had a had a had a, a blessing of a wonderful relationship with my grandfather on my mother's side, and uh, I mean, he was a real mentor to me, a real teacher, and someone who uh, you know I still have great feeling for now. And um, that was an incredibly valuable uh, experience to have that relationship with my grandfather. Well, absolutely, and notice uh, Barack Obama has a special relationship to his grandmother, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a shame if we lose that uh, sharing of wisdom between generations. Yeah, because it is so important. Uh, why do you think men's spirituality is hidden? Why is it hidden? <laughs> well, I think it's hidden even from men because um, I think, for one thing, our culture has confused religion and spirituality, and a lot of men really aren't that interested in religion as such. On the one hand, on the other hand, some men, I would say, are too interested in religion that uh, they don't critique religion uh, in terms of spirituality. For me, spirituality is about living your life out of uh, depth, out of your, your deep value system and your deepest experiences of joy and of grief and of um, struggle for justice. So it's about depth. And um, I think that a lot in our culture um, uh, rewards women for uh, being spiritual, but has men kind of feeling, oh, this is something womanly. Uh, it's it's not um, it's not uh, significant, and it's not uh, really part of my authentic identity. Uh, it's kind of being in the closet. And yet, one thing I learned in in doing this book, I would talk to men, and a lot of men wanted to talk about spirituality. So I ended up interviewing a, a bunch of men and sprinkling the interviews. In the book, yes, and, and a great range: people in their twenties, people in their seventies, um, African American, Latino, uh, Asian, and Caucasian, uh, straight and gay. Um, I think it's beginning to uh, be an issue for men. I think, for one thing, I think they're sensing that the women in their lives um, are not that pleased <laughs> that uh, the men in their lives are kind of falling behind uh, in in terms of spirituality. But I think there are the many forces in our culture that, that make it hidden. Now, another dimension, of course, is that um, experience of the divine is often a hidden thing. Meister Eckhart, the great 14th century mystic, says, we always stammer when we talk about <laughs> divine things. So there is this whole tradition of the deus obscunditus, you know, the hidden divinity, the via negativa, the darkness, the silence. So the very nature of deep spirituality is, in fact, to, uh, to wrestle with mystery. And mystery is always hidden in some way. We, we are, our language is never adequate to it. So that's another reason why it's hidden. I think there are many reasons for hidden. What do you think? <laughs> think it's hidden? I think uh, men are talking about it more. I know in my own life, uh, the men that I, that, that I hang out with certainly are aware of it and and so we, you know, we have circles and we gather and we talk about it. Mm-hmm. But we need language too, you know. Yeah. And I think that, that, frankly, the churches and the synagogue have not been as forthcoming as they should be in providing us um, concepts, language, uh, uh, ways to understand our spiritual journey in a way we're, we're on our own. I think it feels that way. And that's, again, one reason why I did this book. Yeah. 
was talking to a very renowned scientist, a biologist at Stanford University a year or two ago, and he said to me, you know, we're the first species in four and a half billion years on this planet that can choose not to go extinct. But of course, he said, we haven't made that choice yet. So for me, that was another motivation for this book. You know, our species has to wake up. You know, time is running out. The whole global warming is a global warning. It's a wake-up call. And we're not going to have a lot more chances. And for me, waking up is a pretty good definition, frankly, of what spirituality is. And if you check it out both East and West, whether it's Isaiah or Jesus in the West or uh, Lao Tzu or Buddha in the East or Kabir or others, uh, they are talking about waking up. And uh, I think that it's time in our culture history, certainly in America, this great awakening that needs to um, kick in. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's any accident in the fact that, you know, that Rumi is the best-selling poet in the United States, mm. also the best-selling poet in Afghanistan and, and <laughs> Iraq so. as well. So, but, but that's an interesting point because Rumi clearly speaks to that, that inner spirituality. Absolutely. You also, your, you know, your writings, I mean, I go back to uh, uh, your uh, major classic, Original Blessing, and I think a lot of us are imbued with that Christian Christianized culture uh, of that something's wrong with us when we come in, you know, mm. that original sin. We have to basically work ourselves out of that. It's all downhill after that. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And um, frankly, the, I should say, the overreaction on the part of the Vatican, because that book had a lot to do with my expulsion from the Dominican order, um, is itself a, a lesson, a telling lesson that patriarchy has invested a lot in original sin. Even though, as I demonstrate and other theologians have, especially since, uh, Jesus never heard of the concept. It's a little strange to run a, a religion in the name of Jesus on a concept that he's never heard of. <laughs> I, that has to be checked out. I'm speaking with Matthew Fox. He's the author of The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Matthew Fox. He's the author of many books, including The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine. And the website to go to, if you'd like more information, is matthewfox.org, O-R-G. Matthew, one of the things I wanted to ask you before we went further, that is that you mentioned uh, your uh, expulsion from the Dominican order because of original blessing. And uh, Cardinal Ratzinger is now the pope. And I'm just wondering how you per, how that how you perceive that. <laughs> it's pretty rare for a chief inquisitor uh, to be made pope. It's happened, I think, only once or twice in Catholic history. I don't think it 
it's uh, a good time in Catholic history. I think it's a very low point in Catholic history. But I think the Holy Spirit has an imagination far beyond ecclesial politics. And <laughs> I think it really is a deconstruction of the papacy as we've known it for 1,800 years. It's really going on. And uh, it is clearing the field, I think, for what I'd call deep ecumenism, which is a gathering of the wisdom of all the spiritual traditions of the world. And certainly Catholicism has a lot to offer, especially, I'd say, from its past more than its present uh, incarnation. So I think that's really the next step for humanity, is that we have to simplify religion. We have to move from religion to spirituality. We can't carry these centuries of burdens uh, with us. We have to travel much lighter uh, as we... Um, rub shoulders globally with people of different faith traditions. We have to get to the heart of our own tradition because at the same time that the Vatican is is acting a little crazy this time in history, uh, there's been some wonderful advances in terms of uh, Christian scholarship to find out who really Jesus was yes. and what he was really about when he was really teaching. And, and it takes it back to the basics. It was about love and justice and acceptance and about the love of an unconditional creator, not a punitive father uh, with what, with thousands of canon rules and canon law books to, to enforce. So I think um, we just have to travel much lighter uh, into the next uh, millennium of, uh, of the Christian expression. And uh, I think that's happening uh, more by people voting with their feet than by any kind of leadership that we're seeing. Yes. Yeah, it seems like there's a great uh, departure from institutionalized religion. Exactly. And the young just aren't buying it, and um, uh, for good reason. Uh, there's just been too many obvious um, embarrassments, including, of course, the, the uh, pedophile uh, priest scandal. But the real scandal there actually was the hierarchy who did the Passing yeah, around on, these yes, priests and yeah. let it go on. Uh, when that news broke, uh, I was actually in a class, a doctoral class in our university, and a woman spoke up. She said, I'm a business executive. She said, when this happens in uh, business, the CEO is gone in 24 hours, no questions asked. Right. Notice, it happens in business. It happens yeah. everywhere. The key is, how do the leaders deal with it? And the way the Catholic cardinals and bishops dealt with it is a complete scandal. And what it shows is there's been a real dumbing down in the Catholic Church in my lifetime, uh, and of and and a kind of a deconsciousization. De They've not been appointing bishops and cardinals on the basis of conscience, intelligence, and wisdom, but on the basis of yes men. And this is what happens when an organization hires yes men. There's a lot of stupidity there and, and moral ineptitude. Yes. And that's what it's really about. And that's really driven nails in the coffin of, of the organized institutional church at this time in history. Yeah. And going, speaking of the connection between the, 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 the feminine and the uh, sacred masculine, uh, you wrote about the dark goddess. And I thought it was interesting. You said the dark goddess is really... Uh, Fostering creativity, she's she's the one who who urges us to create, and and uh, and of course the dark goddess is uh, uh, everywhere, and and she and interesting enough she's also largely in the southern hemisphere, although she's in the north too. But uh, 
Well, yeah, the Black Madonna came in uh, to uh, Western Christianity in, in a big way in the 12th century. Um, although she was there, we have shrines back in the 3rd century to the Black Madonna in Sicily and so forth. So obviously she comes from Africa and Isis. Yes. But of course we all come from Africa. That makes sense. She's yes. our mother. Right. And uh, But of course Kali in, in India, Kali means means black. So um, Tara. Tara, and, and of course, even Guadalupe is the brown Madonna. Yes, absolutely. So uh, it, it is significant. A lot of people are having uh, dreams and visions of the Black Madonna today, and I think she's coming back with, with spades. Um, and um, the, she represents, among other things, of course, people of color, uh, which is significant, but also she represents the earth. Uh, the earth is dark, and the earth is hurting. And the Black Madonna is is, is she grieves, uh, she's in touch with the suffering of the earth, but she is also, as you say, a, a creator, and that is a solution, isn't it, to so many of our problems? Is human ingenuity and creativity uh, changing the way we're we're doing energy on this planet, of course, and making it green and clean and renewable? Uh, all this is possible if we really. Um, uh, make creativity a priority. But are we doing that? Is our educational system doing that, for example? Are our churches doing that? How important is creativity? Uh, what lessons are our young people getting about creativity? That's one of the archetypes I'm dealing with in this book, for example, would be the green man. Yes. And the green man is a, a, mar a marvelous um, metaphor for creativity because uh, he has uh, leaves uh, as his beard, and he has uh, trigs and branches growing out of his mouth. And uh, all that is about our relationship to nature, especially to vegetative nature. But it's also about our generativity. It's an honoring of male sexuality, seeing it in the larger context of the generativity of Mother Earth. And what is really being said with the green man archetype is that, hey, this is what it means to be male. It means to stand up to defend Mother Earth, to get in touch with your, with your warrior energy, and, and to, to tap into your creativity. Because again, all this growth that comes out of the mouth in the green man, the mouth is a fifth chakra. And um, uh, the fifth chakra is between our heart and our mind. And so it's, it's a real affirmation of our generativity and creativity. I think it's interesting to note that, that Pope John Paul II made two pilgrimages to uh, the site of Guadalupe, site of Mexico City. And the only, the only uh, picture that he had hanging in his private quarters was a picture of Guadalupe, hmm. of the reproduction of, you know, the, of the, the painting of Guadalupe. Mm -hmm. Sure. And then Poland, of course, has a long history of the Black Madonna, too. Yes, exactly. And he was uh, quite devoted to that. But um, he wasn't my favorite pope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he distorted. I think John the Twenty Third, certainly, yes, of course, yeah. certainly. And um, I mean, he's the one who could laugh at his job. You know, yes. he was once asked how many people work in the Vatican. He said about half. <laughs> 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 he's a realist too. I think. Yeah, really. But uh, yeah, he was a great soul, and I think history will demonstrate that. Well, what was interesting to me, that John the Twenty Third was that he sent uh, Thomas Merton, who'd been constantly in, in odds with the church, he sent him his uh, his papal stole, his inauguration stole. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize yeah, that. A, That's great. Arrived That's great. at Gethsemane. Uh, good, you know, good. Sort of acknowledgement of Merton and 
what he'd contributed to the church by John the 23rd. I'm glad to hear that. Yes, Merton was certainly another pioneer. That's the thing. In our lifetime, there have been some some very uh, saintly people. Uh, you know, we could rattle off a lot of them, but most of them have been persecuted by their own church. Uh, for example, Bernard Herring, a great moral theologian who was a very holy man and, and died uh, quite elderly. Right up to the end, he was being hounded by uh, Cardinal Ratzinger and the Inquisition of our time. And, um, of course, Oscar Romero, who was literally murdered and a martyr, murdered while celebrating Mass by the um, military of El Salvador, um, he was called into Rome numerous times and berated uh, for standing up to the military. So, and of course, the whole destruction of uh, the base communities and the liberation theology movement in Latin America by the previous pope with the present one uh, in uh, accomplice. Um, that destruction has uh, been terrible for the Catholic Church in Latin America. Uh, and of course, now they've put Opus Dei cardinals and bishops in charge in many, many countries. And Opus Dei is an extremely uh, right-wing, ultra-conservative movement that the previous pope and this pope are very chummy with. Uh, so, you know, there have been some very sinister goings-on in the Catholic Church in the last 30 years. And um, these things cannot be swept under the rug. Yeah. We've got the archetypes. The, the, one, the, the first archetype you read was Father Sky, The Cosmos Lives. Yes. Um, the modern age taught us that the universe was a machine. And what that meant to men is that, well, the sky is just a junkyard for inert, mechanical, cold, dead parts. And so men, we had to hunker down and we had to shrink our souls because the fact is that all the tribes of the world, the indigenous peoples, uh, celebrate Father Sky. And of course, so does the Bible and Jesus talked about our Father who is in the heavens. But uh, we had to hunker down in, during the Industrial Revolution to fit into the boxes that the um, Industrial Revolution offered us. And frankly, I think this is one of the main reasons for the violence that's grown in the male heart and psyche in the last two or 300 years. Now, however, science, of course, is totally changing its tune with Hubble Telescope. We literally have pictures and sounds and images of what's really going on in the sky. It's anything but dead. There's a new star being born every 15 seconds. Supernovas are, are living, growing, and then dying and expanding, sending out, resurrecting by sending out their elements. The same and as the universe galaxies. is continuing to expand. And the whole universe is expanding. So, I mean, there's so much going on there. It's a tremendous opening for men to get our souls back. Now our deepest passions whether of a desire and beauty or of moral outrage, have a, a place that can absorb it. And I really think that's why it's number one of my archetypes, Father Sky, the cosmos is alive. Because what we're learning about the cosmos is so uh, delicious and so awesome today that it can really feed, especially the young, young man's heart, and realize, hey, we're part of something tremendously dramatic and significant, and, uh, of course, what, what today's science is teaching us is that unlike um, 
modern science such as you got with Bertrand Russell and even the late Stephen Gould, uh, human beings are not just an accident. We have come at an amazing moment in the history of the universe and the history of this planet. And we have very special apparatus. We are mid-size between the tiniest beings in the universe and the largest beings in the universe. And we're just the right size to be able to examine the universe uh, before this uh, curved universe uh, kind of disappears on us. Things go over the horizon on us. So um, we're actually at a very special time and a very special species. And we should start to um, live up to that responsibility and opportunity. Again, it's all about growing up. Sounds like a good idea to me. <laughs> Speaking to Matthew with Matthew Fox, the author of The Hidden Spirituality of Men, 10 Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine. The website is matthewfox.org. That's matthewfox.org. Or the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Matthew Fox, and he's the author of many books, uh, including the classic Original Blessing and Western Spirituality, Spirituality Named Compassion, Signs of the Spirit, Blessings of the Flesh, uh, Natural Grace, which he wrote with Rupert Sheldrake, which is a wonderful, wonderful book, book on creativity, and it goes on. The Coming of the Cosmic Christ, which is another just great book, and The Hidden Spirituality of Men, 10 Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine. And so we're talking about the archetypes that you referred to, the metaphors, archetypes that you referred to in the book. And the, the third one was Icarus and Daedalus. Oh, yes. Well, you know, we, we think we know that story. We say, oh, this, this teenager, Icarus, he disobeyed his father, and so he put on the wings and, and got too close to the sun and crashed. But I, I did some research on this story, and uh, that's not really the, the picture. First of, all, first of all, Daedalus was not a very good father. He had murdered his nephew out of jealousy, because his nephew, like himself, was an inventor. And then, of course, it was because of that murder that he and his son were exiled to the island from which they had to escape. And so um, Daedalus is, is part of the problem. But I think it's really a story about miscommunication between generations. Like I say, if maybe if Daedalus had wrapped his, his uh, message to his son about not getting too close to the sun, um, uh, maybe uh, Icarus would not have crashed. But I just think it's interesting that we've we've interpreted it in terms of disobedience of the young. The fact is that the young need to put on wings. They need to soar. The young men need to soar. And soaring is, of course, the archetype of mysticism and, and adventure. And young men need adventures. And if we uh, misinterpret the story, say it's all about obedience, then where is the adventure in the young person's life? Uh, we all have to put on our wings. So um, I think that that that's uh, uh, an important part of that archetype. It's, it's uh, I guess, in the DNA, there's a there's a, rebe a rebellion naturally built in at a certain certain age. That's right. But if you can create wings and put them on, then your rebellion is is uh, is taking on a positive energy. You see, and when you fly, you see the world from a different perspective, and um, uh, you leave home 
but but you can return a wiser uh, person with more uh, vision and a bigger consciousness. I think rebellion becomes revolution or re-evolution. So it's like there's something positive out of it. It's like rediscovering what needs to happen now. It's like something new. That's right. Is yeah, and you become an instrument of of um, regeneration. But again, if if the whole story is um, boxed into obedience and disobedience, yes, um, there's no invitation to expand. Right. Which of course takes you to another one of the archetypes. And these archetypes, they um, they mix very beautifully. And that's the archetype of the blue man. If I can talk about yes, that. Yes, go ahead. Swami Muktananda, a great Hindu saint of the late 20th century, had a meditation one day that totally changed his life. And that was a meditation on uh, a blue pearl that morphed into a blue man. And he said it became so powerful to him, it changed his life. For one thing, he overcame his fear of death. And it was about recovering the sense of expanding our consciousness because the blue is, represents the sky. Obviously, this links to the Father Sky uh, metaphor as well. But um, it's also about creativity and healing, about compassion. Now, very interestingly, in the 12th century in the West, Hildegard of Bingen, Benedict Nambus, also had a meditation of a man in sapphire blue, who she called the Christ, the healing Christ in every one of us. So there we have an Eastern experience and a Western experience around the same archetype, that um, we as men are healers. We are capable of compassion, and we are here to expand. The blue sky, of course, is not just out there. We're literally breathing the sky. The sky is what we're breathing, what's in our lungs. So it's really very intimate. But it's all, again, if you play with these metaphors, as I encourage people to do, it links up with the Father Sky uh, motif as well. That uh, Father Sky is not out there, and, and Jesus talked this way, talking to his father as Abba, is a very intimate, uh, personal relationship. So all this, I think, invites the man, and women too, and remember there's a, a masculine side to every woman as there's a feminine side to every man. So this, this journey we're making here is of significance uh, to women from that point of view too. Or to put it differently, I think just as the masculine has been toxic and distorted for men, it also has been for women. So women have to detox about their masculine side, just as men have to. So uh, the, the whole teaching of the blue man then is a very um, encouraging uh, invitation to men to join the adventure of expanding our consciousness, of tapping into our creativity and our powers of compassion and healing. Well, one of my favorite archetypes that you wrote about was the hunter-gatherers. Oh, and I was particularly struck by the by the by your reference to Jared Diamond and mm. guns, germs, and steel, and his discovery of the studying the New Guineans and finding that the New Guineans were actually smarter than than, isn't than, that, than we are. Isn't that striking? It was great. It was wonderful. Great. It really was. He talks about how the kids, these um, who are in these hunter-gathering tribes in New Guinea, are much brighter than American kids. They're not, they're not sitting around watching TV. They go to a new village and they immediately learn all about the rocks and all about and all the names and all the uh, names for all the plants and what they can do, how they can heal you or what they taste like, or what's poisonous. They just learn all that immediately. There's a curiosity there that's so alive in our ancestral inheritance because, of course, 90% of our time on this planet, human beings have been hunter-gatherers. And um, uh, there's a lot to learn from this inherited uh, DNA, this caravan of history that we carry within us. 
And one practical question I put is, okay, how are we hunting gathering today? What are we taking this energy for? Obviously, science is a hunting gathering exercise, you know, trying to find the causes and cures of cancer, for example, or what's happening on Mars and, and further in our universe. Where, where, what is this home that we call the universe and so forth? But, you know, I think also sports is tapping into this um, curiosity uh, that hunting gathering is about kind of dangerously so because so many men are addicted to sports that we have to blow the whistle on that. And I think one reason we are addicted is that it, it calls for something of that hunting gathering energy. So, you know, trying to take a ball or watch others take a ball across the goal line amidst uh, the opposition from 11 other uh, players is, is a, a hunting gathering kind of uh, energy. And that has its place. But it's it's not enough, and of course, obviously, war is a is a hunting gathering exercise too. And of course, so is shopping for a lot of people. That's their or just finding a parking place <laughs> in some of our cities, uh, such as San Francisco, is is a big hunting gathering exercise. But I think it's very important to ask, you know, how can we tap into this ancient power that we carry of hunting gathering, and what's really calling us today? For my part, for example, gathering the wisdom of the spiritual traditions of the world, I think, is a very uh, significant role for a lot of people today. Hunting into your own tradition, what's really worth saving in Christianity, not the whole enchilada. We, we can't, as I said earlier, you can't travel that heavy today. What's really worth saving in the Jesus message or in the Jewish message or in the Buddhist message? And, you know, you think about people like Thich Nhat Hanh or Dalai Lama today from the Buddhist tradition who are doing a tremendous job of distilling, of boiling down. They're gathering what's worth passing on to the younger generation today because they have this instinct, too, that you're not going to gather the whole lot. We don't have that much time. So I think that this hunting-gathering energy and, and metaphor is, is very useful. Why, why were you so drawn to it? Well, what was I was drawn to it because I think it's a there's something about indigenous people that that I think we have as a culture, uh, particularly in the northern hemisphere, has discounted a lot. We've discounted it, and we've we've also really not come to terms with it because I mean we haven't, you know, when when um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant came to the Americas and what we did to the indigenous people here, we've never really we've never really acknowledged that. We've never really owned that. And so, consequently, that's something we have to heal. Absolutely, it's we a real shadow in our soul. It's souls. a real shadow in our soul, and and so there's so much that so much indigenous people have to teach us. Absolutely. Now, I also draw on that chapter in Barbara Ehrenreich's wonderful yes. book on celebration. Yes. And remember, that was a high point of ritual and worship. But the high point was the indigenous peoples. And for me, it still is, frankly. I derive more from a sweat lodge and a vision quest and a Sundance, frankly, than I do from most uh, uh, worship services out of yes. my own tradition. And um, because they never lost the connection of the macrocosm, again, the sky, right. and the microcosm, the, the local community gathering, the large hoop and the, and the small hoop. And um, that kind of energy, and of course, bringing the body to worship instead of just books and reading and yes. getting the note right or the sermon right, you know, it's also boring. <laughs> I mean, it is, right. and it doesn't have to be. It yeah. ought to be the gathering of the energy, the joy and the pain, the, 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 the grief, too, and the creativity of the tribe. And you wrote about that tribe you visited that, that where they, had, they actually had 27 times when they celebrated. 
Oh yes, Remember that story. That's a great story. <laughs> yes, yes, right, uh, right. That that celebration counts. It matters. And uh, how good are we at celebrating today? You know, as a, as a tribe, as a community, I think we need more of that, not not less. You have to focus on the negative and not on the positive. Exactly, and to get us out of our heads and into our bodies, where the heart is, after all. Yes. Um, so important, and where real healing can happen. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I think the hunting-gathering archetype um, has a lot going for it. And uh, I'm very indebted personally to the Native American teachers that I've been blessed with in my life, such as the late Buck Ghost Horse, who was a Lakota teacher, yes. and um, others, Jose Habde, a Seneca woman who's still alive. And um, as you say, they bring something that's been lost. We have to bring it uh, into the into the mix of the of the real wisdom of our species because yes. it is that and nothing less yeah also the, there's the uh, spiritual warrior and uh, and so what's the, what about the spiritual warrior well actually it was a native american who really woke me up this between a soldier and a warrior yes. he was in our doctor program and he told me the story that he had been in the vietnam war and when he came back his elder said to him you've been a soldier now we're going to make you a warrior and I said, what was the training like? Four years, he said. Four years. Now, that's so significant because our journalists and politicians uh, mix the word warrior and soldier interchangeably. And it, it isn't the same if it takes four years to move from being a soldier to warrior. And um, what is the, the heart of the difference? Well, Hafiz, the great 14th century Sufi mystic, says that uh, the warrior carries his heart through the world like a life-giving sun, S-U-N but only if he and God have become sweet lovers. So that's the difference. The soldier is given a gun and saying his duty is to kill or be killed. Very specific, focused uh, job there. The warrior is doing his heart work. The warrior is going into his capacity for loving, but also for dealing with what Hafiz calls the ghosts of the past. We all carry ghosts of the past. And for dealing with the ghosts of the future, such as fear. Fear is always about the future. So the, the real warrior is able to stand uh, in the now, like Jesus talked about. The kingdom and queen of heaven is among you. He stands in the now. She stands in the now. Does not overreact to fear, which is a future thing, or to the ghosts from the past, whatever they be. So there's a strength to the warrior. And um, you can see this this strength uh, incarnated in the green man, too. The, the green man is standing to defend Mother Earth uh, at this time when uh, there's so much uh, attack. And you're listening to the voice of Matthew Fox, and he's the author of The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
my guest is Matthew Fox, a former Dominican priest, non-Anglican priest, uh, and author of The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine. Matt, we're still exploring the archetypes that you wrote about in, in, in the book. What about masculine sexuality, numinous sexuality of males? Well, you know, in many cultures around the world, the um, sexual organs are celebrated as integral to a sacred experience. So there are many temples in India, for example, that honor the phallus. Uh, and um, uh, also in, in Africa, in Muslim countries, actually, in Africa, it's, it's a shame that the West has wanted to separate sexuality from spirituality. The truth is, though, we have a book in the Bible, the Song of Songs, which, uh, of course, is the Jewish Bible, which very much celebrates lovemaking as a theophany, as a mystical experience, as a redemption of the Garden of Eden. Uh, but the truth is that we've tried to clean that, <laughs> that book up and say, oh, it's really about God loving the church or Jesus loving God or something. But, or the soul. But no, it, it talked to Jewish people about it. It is about uh, lovemaking as a sacred experience. I, I quote a Taoist uh, teacher in that chapter who's worked a lot with Westerners, and he said, though he's from the East, and he says, you know, uh, I find that more people have mystical experiences in, in lovemaking than they, than they do in church. <laughs> so maybe there's some kind of competition going on here. Maybe that's why the church is, has been so uh, eager to moralize about sex instead of to put it in its larger context, which is a mystical context. That's really what's been going on, I think. So I'm trying to kind of shake all that up and, and just to remind men that our sexuality and its many and varied expressions is an integral part of our spirituality. And you don't have to uh, separate the two. In fact, it's very dangerous to separate the two. The, um, I was just thinking as you were talking that you know, in the East, you have the, the you know, Vajrasattva, which is the, you know, the, the sexual act depicted as a spiritual experience. Um, Tantra, Tantric Satriakli, is all mm -hmm. about basically reaching that level of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's a much different approach than we have in, in, in Christianity. Far more integrated. But, you know, actually, I, I think a lot of the Christian negativism comes from pre-Christian teaching from Plato and the Neoplatonists. And, um, you know, in, in many ways, we have to kind of uh, purge that or, or cleanse that, detox that teaching. But, of course, it's St. Augustine, the 4th century A.D., who really put the lid on this when he says such things as, uh, spirit is whatever is not matter, for example. And he himself was very neurotic about sexuality. <laughs> um, oh, he was. And... Uh, and then he equated his conversion to Christianity after he had had a mistress for 13 years and had a child, became a Christian, and took a vow of celibacy. Well, that, that's confused a lot of people for the last 1,600 years, you know, <laughs> yeah. including the, the church hierarchy itself. So, uh, and, but it's because of his teaching, not Jesus, that, for example, today the Catholic Church forbids birth control and even forbids condoms in an age of AIDS and so forth. It comes from Augustine who said that making love is always at least a venial sin because you lose control. And uh, you have to legitimize it by having babies. And that is the exact teaching of Cardinal Ratzinger today, that you have to legitimize sex by having babies. And that's why uh, birth control is, is out the window, even in a time of obvious human population explosion. And also it's why um, homosexuality is uh, so badly treated, one of the reasons. It's interesting that Jesus uh, uh, blessed the marriage of Canaan. and it was The first sacrament is marriage. 
<laughs> it's a blessing of marriage, a blessing of coming together of man and woman. There you have. And and it's interesting, in, in the history of the Catholic Church, uh, they went through a great debate in the 12th century about whether marriage is really a sacrament or not. And the course of monastic establishment said, no, how could it be a sacrament? Because we're the ones without celibacy, and celibacy isn't a sacrament, and blah, blah, blah. But the truth is that the lay people went out, they won that debate that uh, marriage is a sacrament. And what it really means is that man and wife, that the lovers are bestowing grace on their whole uh, condition and their whole life uh, in their relationship, uh, culminating in um, lovemaking. So um, again, the, the, the tradition carries some answers to some of these dilemmas, but um, uh, you have to dig to find the good news in that tradition. Yes. Our cosmic and animal bodies. Well, you know, our bodies are, are amazing, and they are a 14 billion year um, story. Each one of us, for example, our 60% of our bodies are hydrogen atoms, and the hydrogen atoms go back to the original fireball. So the majority of our body is 13 billion years old, and um, we're sharing the same elements with the bodies of the planets and the stars and the supernovas. So we are literally cosmic beings. Young people have to hear this, you know. This is terrific news. This is the latest science. And um, it shows that we should, of course, take very good care of our bodies. We should honor them. They are sacred. It, and that in, it really in, reinforces our, our interest in exercise, in eating healthily, in uh, having, of course, healthy air and water and forests for our children. It, it's all one picture here of um, the sacredness of the earth, the sacredness of our bodies, the sacredness of our existence. And men are called at this time in history in particular, women too, to stand up for our bodies, to stand against, for example, corporate food chains that are, are pumping our bodies with, um, with poison and to stand for uh, healthy uh, farming as opposed to uh, excessive uh, chemical farming and so forth. I mean, this, this whole issue of the sacredness of our bodies and the food we eat and the air we breathe, it has tremendous political, economic fallout and implication. It's all part of uh, uh, living uh, a life of strength and spirituality. That's one of the things I've learned from doing this book is how much work there is out there for men today to get out of our couches, out of our addictions to watching others put a ball across a, a goal line and uh, contribute. Just I was lecturing a, a few weeks ago on this and a man came up afterwards and he said, you know, you're right. I am watching too much television and too much sports on television. I should get, get out of my couch potato and uh, contribute and I'm going to. He said, you know, I'm going to change my, my ways. And uh, I think that's what has to happen. I think men need some conversions. Yes. The other archetype that we haven't talked about yet was Earth Father, the Fatherly Heart. And I thought that one of the, one of the great things that you wrote about in the book, the qualities of the paternal heart, caring, uh, giving and generous, listening, looking to the future, encouraging, see the big picture, playful and affectionate, protection and instruction. And, and I'm thinking of that paternal heart is so missing in our in our leadership mm. in our country today that mm -hmm. those qualities are not there you know mm. 
And so it's so that's so important. Mm. Yes, they're not there in the leadership, and yet they're there in every man. Of course. And so many men have profound mystical experiences when they become fathers for the first time, especially now that men are so often present for the birth experience, which was not the case, of course, uh, a number of years ago. So uh, to tap into that that natural energy to care, to educate, to protect, to to teach, to listen, you know, to learn. I mean, our children are our teachers, and and as well as we are our, our children's teachers. So there's just a tremendous reservoir of energy and potential there. But and I also want to stress that we not get literal over fatherhood. You know that um, as a as a journalist, you are doing these things by putting ideas into the world, and uh, and politicians do them, and and teachers do them. So you don't have to be a literal father to recognize your responsibility as a father. Uh, just being a citizen in the culture is is carrying this fatherly heart and this fatherly responsibility. And clearly, we have so many young people who are lost today. 72% of, of young black boys are not graduated from high school in the United States of America today. Where are Say the fathers? Say that again. 72% of black high school boys are not graduating from high school today so, in America. Very sad. Where, now, does this mean that these kids are dumb because they're dropping out, or does it mean the adults are dumb because they're insisting on an educational system that is not in any way communicating with the younger generation? So where are the men? Where are the parents? But where are the adults with the fatherly heart who stand up and shout and provide alternative forms of education that will speak and will uh, allure the young people to their, to their potential? So there are so many ways in which we're called to be father besides just the literal fatherhood, uh, especially at this time in history. Yeah. One of the things that you did, which was I thought was great when it was happening, was the, was the sacred rave, the, the spiritual rave, where, where young people could get together, even I mean, not just young people, but anybody could get in there and dance and sing and mix it up. Right. When, when I became an Episcopal priest, I did it with one thing in mind, and that is to help young people reinvent our forms of worship, because I found the forms of worship very boring. And what Rave was doing in bringing the body back and, and using today's technology of DJing and VJing and, and rap and all of it, the new art forms, uh, is tremendously uh, renewing for worship. We're still doing it. We just had one in New York City uh, three weeks ago. And uh, so we've been training others to do it, not having them all uh, in Oakland. We've done over 90 of these masses, and well, most have been in Oakland, a number have been in other cities. So I hope to kind of um, um, do more of that in the next year or two, because I think the reinvention of forms of worship is terribly important, because ritual is a shortcut for uh, the community uh, sharing, learning, celebrating joy, and grieving together, and thereby... Uh, uh, energizing our powers of creativity. If there's one thing you could leave with our listeners, what would it be? <laughs> well, I end the book with um, the marriage of the sacred masculine and the divine feminine. And I think it is very important that men uh, become uh, more in touch with their spirituality so that they make uh, better uh, husbands and um, uh, more equal partners with women. Also, I have a, an appendix with a lot of practical exercises that build around each of these 10 metaphors. There are many things men can do, and, and women too, and women can encourage them to do, to develop each of these uh, dimensions in our, in our lives again. And I think with that, we'll have uh, an awakening. 
Well, Matt, we're out of time. It's been great being with you again. Thanks so much. Thank you, Michael. I've been speaking with Matthew Fox, and he's the author of The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine, published by New World Library. The website is matthewfox.org. That's matthewfox.org, or through New Dimensions' website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Thompson. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3283. This is program number 3283. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.